according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. This morning we are in Jeremiah. We are in Jeremiah 17. And uh, I've been looking forward to this chapter. A lot of you folks I know have been looking forward to this chapter. We've got, uh, in some respects, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? And uh, in some respects, this is the only verse a lot of folks even know is in the book of of, uh, Jeremiah. (laughs) Or maybe possibly I have plans for you, plans for your, uh, not for your adversity, but for your blessing and to give you a future and to give you a hope. Uh, Folks try to claim that verse as well. They're applied to Israel, by the way, not to us. But we can take a secondary application. Anyway, Jeremiah 17. We've got to deal with a desperately wicked heart. And we will. I'm tempted to uh, spend a whole hour on that one verse. Verse 9, by the way. But no, we've got, uh, we've got to cover 27 verses. And in fact, this is a chapter that is broken down into five parts. And uh, we'll be doing good if we can get through all five here this hour. But we'll uh, see as the Lord provides. It's a powerful chapter. It's an array of messages. Uh, Not one common theme, but a sequence of of messages. Most likely, I believe, given at various times throughout Jeremiah's prophetic career, and yet brought together in in the collection, in the written collection here, uh, chosen to be placed here in this chapter. Remember, uh, Jeremiah is unlike any other book in your Bible in the sense that it is out of order. There's no chronology to it. There's no sequence to it. Uh, some of the chapters are very late in his life. Some of the chapters are very early in his life, and they are scrambled. I recommend uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary has a good outline if you want to put them in a sequence. Uh, but even the chart they provide is uh, somewhat debatable on a couple of the chapters as far as whether we date them early or we date them late. In any event, we're going to handle verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 18, and 19 through 29 if we get that far. Lord willing, and rapture pending. Before we get started, though, let's open up with a word of prayer. Ask the Father to sanctify our thinking and to, uh, to help us concentrate. We've got some tough things this chapter, so let's pray. Almighty Father, we come before your throne of grace, rejoicing in your faithfulness, thankful for your truth calling upon you this morning, Father, to set aside distractions and to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Open our ears, Father. Teach us your truth. Uh, Father, make clear to each one of us what we need to understand and what we need to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we're here more than just, uh, we're not just here for the academic information, Father. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Father, we want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless your word today. Feed us, Father, from your eternal truth. I thank you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. In a lot of ways, this is such an amazing chapter, I think that we could adapt it. In fact, I've considered taking uh, this, the notes from this chapter and adapting it for a, a Bible conference, just taking it to a five-part message if I was ever invited in a church somewhere or hosted a conference here and uh, take the five messages from uh, this chapter and break each one down into a message and draw a significant uh, application from each one. But we'll start with uh, verses 1 through 4, and let's uh, understand the record-keeping that takes place in uh, the plan of God. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. So we have a written record of their sin. And that grabs our attention right away because I don't want my sins written down. I want my sins forgotten. I want my sins cast behind us back into the depths of the sea. I want my sins sealed up in a bag. But here are the sin, is the sin, singular, of Judah. And it is written down with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. And we have record keeping that uh, we want to understand and how it applies. Verse 2, as they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their asherim by green trees on the high hills. They're remembering the children they sacrificed in this uh, wicked, wicked um, uh, idol worship. O mountain of mine on the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty. 
your high places for sin throughout your borders, and you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which will burn forever. All right, so there's our first four verses. And some principles, I think, that we can glean from this and that we ought to at least get some notes down today and then think about it in the coming weeks and, and so forth. Um, I, I've titled this National Generational Record Keeping. National Generational Record Keeping. Not only is it the record of Judah, but it's the record of Judah generation by generation particularly focused on this generation of Jeremiah's day, all right? National generational record-keeping documents the corporate sin ascribed to the collective heart of an accountable people group, all right? That's the point. And not only does it appear here, but we have it elsewhere throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a principle that we ought to be wrestling with, in particular, for our nation's national generational accountability. The United States of America of this generation, of this day and age, those living Americans today, what are we accountable for and what is the judgment coming upon our nation prior to our children arriving uh, on the scene? So we have national generational record-keeping and this shouldn't surprise us because this is actually uh, featured elsewhere throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised that God is the kind of God who communicates and He's the kind of God who puts things in writing, all right? Because uh, He wants no misunderstandings of His perfect will. And He wants no accusations against His perfect fairness. Everything is laid out and everything is placed in writing and they can, uh, the, the records can be searched and will be searched By the time we reach the great white throne, the books will be opened and everything will be laid out there to be searched as far as what has been written in this respect. All right, we have our text today. I would also uh, point you to Matthew 11, verses 22 and 24, and Matthew 12, just by way of um, comparison. But in order to consider, we're talking about a corporate sin of an accountable people group. All right? We're not talking about individual personal sins, things that you've done in the last week or what have you. We're not talking about uh, personal sins of individuals, but the collective sin, singular, of an accountable people group. Notice the collective heart. There's only one heart in verse 17. Lave is in the, is in the singular, engraved upon the tablet of their heart. So when we talk about what our individual hearts are like, we've got to talk about that when we get to verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked. We have a cardia inside each one of us or a lave inside of each one of us. That's not what verse 1 is dealing with. We're talking about the collective heart of an accountable people group upon which the sin of that people has been inscribed. All right? And that ought to grab our attention right now because our people group has a lot of sin inscribed upon our collective heart. How defiled are we? How judged are we in cursing by association for what's written upon our generation right here right now in the united states of america let me give you a couple other passages to consider you'll note though that there's judgment here and the consequences are for not passing on a heritage to uh, that is uh, uh, allegiance to yahweh to the next generation matthew 11 verses 22 and 24 you know we are accountable to train up a godly seed We are accountable to train up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And when our generation fails to instill those values in the next generation, God's wrath is on the way. Understand that. In Matthew 11, it says, uh, Jesus begins to denounce those cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Jesus was preaching, he was doing miracles, and he's not seeing fruit. The cities aren't repenting. And you think, man, what a loser Jesus is. <laughs> you know, what a failed ministry. Why is he not preaching better? Why is he not doing better miracles? The fact is, had, he, had those miracles been done in other generations, in other nations, there would have been a repentance. And that's the whole point here in this chapter. So woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Imagine what 
Elijah could have done after his battle with the prophets of Baal if he would have then left Mount Carmel and gone into Tyre and actually started to perform miracles there. Consider the, uh, what might have been the case. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Look at that. You'll notice that generation, that national generational accountability for what is written, for what is recorded, national generational record keeping. And the United States of America is going to have a judgment when judgment day comes, but it's going to be applied generation by generation by generation. And I tremble to consider, obviously, what this generation is going to face compared to, say, the founding fathers and compared to previous generations that made a priority on the Word of God. Um, Verse 24 as well, Sodom and Gomorrah. The rebuke comes to Capernaum here. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. That's 2,000 years later. Not only could Abraham or Lot done these miracles and Sodom could have repented, 2,000 years later, Sodom could still be a leading city of the world. And that's extraordinary. What cities last for 2,000 years and are still on the scene and have... have uh, existence on that basis jesus said sodom could have been had those miracles been done that were done in capernaum likewise a chapter over in matthew chapter 12 by the way if you want more on this the life of christ series we taught this in tremendous depth as far as the sovereignty of god and the volition of man right god sovereignly did not send those miracles to sodom but the volition of man is still accountable for how they failed in uh, at sodom and gomorrah Matthew 12, verses 41, 42, and 45. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay? National generational record keeping and national generational accountability on judgment day. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And some other things here I think are interesting with respect to demons and fallen angels and so forth. Verse 45, when a fallen angel, when a demon comes back, it goes along and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation all right there's more teaching to go there but uh due to the time we're not going to plunge into it i think there's a couple of things and i'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide but you can use this i use this uh this is my apologetic this is my evangelism approach i believe god is a communicator i also believe god is a writer all right and so when I talk about the existence of God and I turn to natural revelation and I see the creation and I see the realms of creation, to me, it's not only is it self-evident that there is a God, God exists, Romans 1, that, that his power is clearly seen, his divine nature is evident, mankind is without excuse. And I think it's a step beyond that. Not only is man without excuse that there is a God, but that very God is a communicator. He is a communicator. And we see all of the blessings and we see all of the aspects of creation that communicates. The animals that bark or meow or woof or or chirp or, or dolphin chatter or whatever they do, they communicate. And they communicate like they're after their kind. And it's remarkable, of course, that when you go through the, the scripture record here, you're reading in Genesis, then God said, let there be light. And day by day, step by step, the creation week was an act of communication. God spoke and the universe came into being. And God spoke in the restoration of the the earth in the creation week. Day by day, word by word, God said, see. So it shouldn't surprise us that it's God the Son who's the Word, who's the communicator, who's the creator, all right? God is a communicator and that ought to be self-evident. And I'm not going to take us through, but all those verses in Genesis 1 where the Lord God said, or Genesis 2, 
Uh, God's still speaking when he says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. And we're going to talk about that. Remind me, Wednesday night, we're going to talk about that. Because that's part of the evidence for the male soul and the female soul and why I believe the souls are designed by their uh, appropriate gender. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 1, when when, uh, the tempter comes, how does he tempt? Indeed, did God say? And the first temptation and the first attack for unfallen humanity is an attack upon God the communicator. Did God say? Well, God said something untrue. God lied. And it's an attack on God the communicator. Not only is God a communicator, but God is a writer. And that I find extraordinary. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that he puts it in writing. What's put in writing is is made sure. What's put in writing is verifiable. We can be noble-minded like the Bereans and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. And not every communicator is a writer. I am not a writer. I wish I was. I think I'm a very poor writer. And maybe in future years I'll improve in that regard and God will, will uh, allow for that. But God is both a communicator and a writer. And I think it's interesting in Exodus 32, 32. Exodus 32, 32. I'll just grab this quickly. Won't take time on any of these, but we'll see them. Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two, about um, he says, "But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, this is when Aaron's making the golden calf, and Moses is is praying and interceding, saying, you know, don't blast them." Um, Moses says, "But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book which you have written." That's extraordinary, isn't it? Moses is the first human author of any canon of Scripture book, and yet he testifies here that God himself is a writer. I believe this is the Lamb's book of life. And Moses has a perspective on this that begins in, in really even in Genesis. I think that, that the patriarchs in Genesis were aware of the Lamb's book of life that then carries us forward to Revelation. But he speaks of the book there, all right? Likewise, Psalm 40 and verse 7. Psalm 40 and verse 7. Another testimony to God as a writer. Then I said, this is Jesus, right? Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. A body thou hast prepared for me, or my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What book is he referring to there? What scroll is he referring to there? It's not from the Hebrew canon. All right, it's God himself as a writer and something that the Father has written and guaranteed to the Son. And the Son has agreed to it. That's why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. A body thou hast prepared for me. Psalm 69, 28, it's another reference to the Lamb's Book of Life. In Daniel 7 and verse 10, uh, in Daniel, uh, another reference there in heaven, as the books were opened, the Ancient of Days took his seat and the books were opened. See, that's why you've got to love books on earth because there's going to be books in heaven. If you don't love books on earth, then you find yourself not loving something that's a feature of heaven, all right? So in Daniel 7.10, the Ancient of Days took his seat and the books were open. Daniel 10.21, the angel Gabriel promises to teach Daniel something that's written in the writings of truth. I think that's a reference to angelic scripture. But it's only hinted at in, in, our, in our Bible, all right? The writings of truth. And he gives them the content of, of chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11, that's not found anywhere else in the Hebrew canon. And so Gabriel was teaching from some other heavenly record called the writings of truth. And then finally, of course, Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15. The, uh, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened, plural. A whole set of books are opened up. And another book was opened, a final book, a unique book, a one-of-a-kind book that's not part of that plural set of books. That, other, that single book is called the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. See, that's why when we talk about the sin of Judah being written with an iron stylus, with a diamond tip, we're talking about deeds. We're talking about things that are recorded for judgment. 
course, national sin is different from personal sin, and national judgment is different from personal judgment. These are categories of doctrine that need to be studied separately. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. All right, the second death. And by the way, if you've been born twice, you don't face that second death. Okay, you're only going to die once, and maybe not even then, if you're the rapture generation. If you're born twice, you only die once. But if you're only born once, if you're not born again, then you die twice. You will face the second death. And that's promised to you. You will stand at this great white throne and these books will be opened. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Not for what he's done, but because his name is not in the book of life. That's the key. So God is a communicator and God is a writer. And there's a whole lot of teaching that goes into those first four verses. And I think that would become the subject of an entire message in a conference type setting. We've got to move on to verses 5 through 8. And there is a prophetic pair of patriarchs. A prophetic pair. In fact, a proverbial pair. A proverbial pair of patriarchs. Poetically portray prophetic plantings. I apologize. I got a little out of control. It's kind of fun to think about Proverbs and Psalms because here's a prophet, and this prophet is writing a psalm that could find itself fit perfectly well in the book of Proverbs, and I just got carried away with my peas. The hilarious thing about it is that Psalms, Proverbs, and Prophets, none of them start with P in the Hebrew language. So tough, you got uh, a T for the Psalms and an M for the Proverbs and a, and a uh, N for the, for the Prophets. But let's look at these guys. Because we have two patriarchs, and this is going to upset the feminists, so we'll uh, just trigger warning here and now. Um, There are verses, and and ladies, to be fair, to be fair, there are an awful lot of verses that use the word man, that we go overboard to say mankind, we go overboard to say this includes you ladies also, right? And some of them you ladies kind of like because... Uh, it seems like they're bad verses and you want to be off the hook and, and not be included in some of those verses. All right, and we include you. We're sure to include you when man is man or mankind or humanity. That's not here. This verb is the male gender, specifically the adult male gender, specifically the patriarch, the man of fighting age. And so it excludes children, excludes little boys, excludes old men that are beyond combat age. It excludes every female of, of whatever age. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, in mankind, all right? So we got the man and the mankind. Cursed is the Gabor who trusts in Adam, right? You know somebody named Adam, your brother, all right? Adam, humanity, that's mankind. But before we have the mankind, we have the Gabor. Cursed is the Gabor who trusts in Adam and mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. All right? He will be like a bush in the desert. So we got two plants. We have two patriarchs and we have two plants. In verse 5, we have the Gabor with the wrong faith. In verse 7, we have the Gabor with the right faith. The Gabor who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. In verse 6, we got a shrub. In verse 8, we've got a a mighty oak tree, right? It doesn't say oak, but it's a mighty tree planted by the water. And so this is the poetry. Verse 5, cursed is. Verse 7, blessed is. Verse uh, 5 is the wrong kind of faith. Verse eight is the, 7 is the right kind of faith. Verse 6 is the shrub just barely surviving in the wilderness. Verse uh, 8 is the tree planted and firm and strong. It's a beautiful psalm. Let's read it. So thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. He will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. All right, what a poem. 
This is the poetry of this psalm that's written here. And it presents this proverbial pair of patriarchs. All right, so which Gabor do we want to follow? Which Gabor do we want to identify with? And uh, in fact, what a, what a practical uh, verse to preach on in a political season. Because how many uh, people are placing their faith in a politician? Cursed is the man that trusts in man. All right. If you believe that someone in the ballot box is your savior, um, think again. Your savior died on the cross for your eternal life. And until he returns at second advent, we will not have perfect government upon this earth. So we have a contrast here. Cursed is the Geber who trusts in Adam. But blessed is the Geber who trusts Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. All right? Whose trust is Yahweh. And this becomes the issue. All right? We want to know. And, 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 and we want to be Gebers in our generation. All right? We want to be the Geber of our marriage, the Geber of our family, the Geber of our local church. We want to recognize what the plan of God teaches as it, as it uh, teaches the accountability of fathers over their families, of husbands over their marriages, of, of elders over their tribes and clans, of kings over their nation, of the high priest over the priesthood, over the flock. And the Bible is, is very, very uh, patriarchal in its structure which I believe is why the modern world is very angry at the patriarchy and why they are rebelling every chance they can get to tear down patriarchy at every, at every stage. All right? And it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious to watch what's happening in Europe right now because there's a culture being invaded by another culture and the culture that doesn't seem to be able to stand up for itself anymore because how long have they been spent tearing down their own patriarchy? And rather than stand and defend their women, uh, there's a different patriarchy that's invading. And they seem to be more fervent about their own patriarchy. Anyway, that's a side trip. I don't have time for those today. (laughs) All right. But understand Gabor. And understand too, by the way, on the female side of things, the Gabor is called the Gabor Hachail when he's the mighty man of valor. The woman can also be Hachail. She can also be a woman of valor, but her valor is excellence. And her Hachail is the woman of excellence from Proverbs 31. The woman of excellence who can find the blessing of, of the Lord of a woman of excellence like Ruth to Boaz, a woman of excellence to any man. That's a gift from the Lord. And the man, when he is a Gabor Chayil, he is the, the leader that, that fears the Lord and leads his family. The woman, when she's a, a, a woman, an Esheth Chayil, uh, she's the one that's not the, uh, the woman of folly that Proverbs speaks of there. Anyway, that's more of that in the book of Proverbs, if you'd like. This poem is clearly an echo from Psalm 1 and Psalm 40. Uh, I don't think it's deniable that Jeremiah was influenced by Psalm 1 or Psalm 40. Um, I think he would have to be completely oblivious to Scripture to not know Psalm 1. And every indication is that Jeremiah was powerful in the Scriptures, clearly not oblivious to uh, the Psalms, at least as they existed in his day, and the Proverbs as they existed in his day. Um, but Psalm 1, blessed is the man, and, and this, this is why I think it's vital that we, that we maintain these contrasts, because in Psalm 1, it is the Adam, it is, it is not the Gabor, all right? And actually, the man is, is even just a supplied noun, unstated, the one. How blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'd be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And so it's, it's a clear connection. And, and it had impact in Jeremiah's day. It ought to have impact in our day. When you see the, the, the link that these men had, um, I, I find it sad how many doctrinal believers think Psalms and Proverbs is a waste of time. And, you know, they're just st- sticking Romans, stay in, stay in the Pauline epistles, stay in the New Testament, feed us some solid doctrine for the church age. And I tell you, Psalms and Proverbs is what kept uh, Jeremiah stable. And I want to I glean Psalms and, Pro- Psalms and Proverbs and Jeremiah to keep us stable as our nation goes through uh, our own destruction. 
as uh, it's going to be Jeremiah that's going to bless us in this capacity. Psalm 40 as well. Man, there's a lot in here. In Psalm 40, uh, reading the whole psalm, but we can glean the, uh, the echoes and what influenced Jeremiah in writing this. Pages are slow this morning. Psalm 40, it's the Psalm of David. And uh, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. See, if you reject the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ here in the church age, well, then the counterfeit father will have a substitute for you ready to go. You can lapse into falsehood. You can turn to the proud one. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done in your thought towards us. There is none to compare with you. I would, if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired, a body that has prepared of me. See, we were just here a little bit ago, weren't we? Is this David speaking or is this Jesus Christ speaking? Trick question, it's both. It's David in his day and age prophetically, but it's also Jesus Christ from eternity past speaking about how he himself is going to trust in his father for his entire first advent ministry. That's uh, what we're called upon to do as well. I find it interesting here, you know, if we're contrasting the two, Gabor, are we not contrasting the first Adam with the second Adam? Is this, can we go through the detail here? When we look at Psalm 1, where we're contrasting wicked and righteousness, in Jeremiah 17, I believe we're contrasting the carnal with the spiritual. We're contrasting the carnal with the spiritual, and the bush is still saved. The tree is saved. They're both Gabor. So it's not a contrast of the it's not a contrast of the lost versus the saved. It's a contrast of a believer that's got his faith in the wrong place. He's putting his faith in man, not in the Lord. And so I think what we have here as we contrast Psalm one with Jeremiah seventeen, I think we got the foreshadowing of first Corinthians three, where we have he that is spiritual and he that is carnal. The issues there. Also, I think we've got a preview of Romans 5. The contrasted Gavarim may also form an Old Testament foreshadowing of the first Adam and the last Adam. Understand, in Adam all die. Those that are still in Adam are bound for the lake of fire. But in Christ, all are made alive. So in, in which Gabor are we trusting? Okay? And there's a whole realm of doctrine. In fact, if you have to teach an Old Testament soteriology about faith in Christ, Jeremiah 17 is a place to turn. You've got your batach terminology, you've got faith, you've got trust, you've got the, uh, the contrast of one atom versus the other. I think it's interesting. And it's a study for a different day. Because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. Okay, So ignore those Disney movies where the princess tells you, listen to your heart. Okay, um, Don't listen to your heart. Okay, Unless it's the new heart that's being renewed. Okay, You have a new heart in Christ. And we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, okay? Otherwise, that old heart, that fallen heart, oh, it's deceitfully sick. It's one thing to be sick, but to be deceitfully sick, all right? That, that doubles it. In fact, more than doubles it. I mean, it's bad enough to be sick, but to be deceitful about it, to where the person is convinced that they're the healthy ones, they're the normal ones, they're the good ones, they're the ones that are, that are rightly adjusted to the universe, and you and I are the ones that are called sick. You and I are the ones that are called haters and primitive and, and not adjusted to the modern world. Yes, the heart is deceitfully sick. 
Sick and convincing itself that it's not sick. Sick and convincing itself that we're the sick ones. So more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Both aspects, deceitful and sick. Who can understand it? Who would want to? (laughs) Okay. And what's interesting, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And the God who can know the sick heart doesn't want to. Instead, he searches and he tests and he molds and he provides. And what he's evaluating is our growth with the new heart, with the new provision. As a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly, in the midst of his days, it will forsake him, and in the end, he will be a fool. So we have verses 9 through 11 here to deal with, and it almost seems like verse 11 doesn't belong, but it does. It belongs marvelously with verses 9 and 10. But we start here with this sick heart, and we start with the nature of the fall, and how God in his grace condemned all of Adam because all Adam sinned. The Adamic heart is a sick heart. God in His grace, He judged Adam, the fallen race, when Adam, the forefather, sinned. Understand this. This is vital. This is fundamental to our soteriology. It's fundamental to many things in the Christian walk. Okay? It's also patriarchal. So (laughs) if if you're of the feminist bent that hates this sort of thing, uh, I recommend you start to appreciate federal headship. Because the provision for uh, being lost in, on the lake, uh, road to the lake of fire is the federal headship in Adam, but the provision for eternal life is the federal headship in Jesus Christ. And we ought to rejoice in that federal headship. God judged Adam, the fallen race, when Adam, the forefather, sinned, leaving the heart of Adam, the fallen race, totally depraved. The heart is totally depraved. That's every human heart. Every human heart born in Adam, I don't care. I mean, we got some cute babies and whatever, and they're fun to goo-goo with, and, and, you know, it's great. But that baby is a sinner. That baby is a sinner by nature. And when they're old enough, they'll be a sinner by practice. It doesn't take that long either, <laughs> okay? Um, they're in Adam. And that's the nature of it. I, I like to tell unbelievers, you know, like believers, you're saved by grace. An unbeliever is, is lost by grace. They are condemned in Adam to the lake of fire and it's due to nothing they've done to earn it or deserve it. Say, that way we can take merit off the table. Say, I'm not really interested in what you've done. I'm not really interested in why you think you can't be saved or the bad things that are sending you to hell. The wages of sin, singular, is death. And that sin, singular, is Adam's sin. Adam sinned, we all sinned. Romans 5. And I do want to spend the bulk of my time here, so I don't mind slowing down and looking at this. Romans 5. And if what you hear today entices you to learn more, then I urge you to go uh, discover Romans on the, book, on the website. It's sitting there. Romans 5 is just sitting there. All the chapters of Romans are just sitting there waiting to be listened to. Those MP3s, we took 10 hours to teach Romans 5. And in verses 12 through 21, we've got the point being made. Sin entered, just through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. All sinned. You and I, in the loins of Adam, are accounted as participants in Adam's sin. Everybody sinned that day when Adam sinned. All sinned. And so... Death spread to all men because all sin. That is, the wages of sin is death. And uh, even before the law of Moses, even before some of it was codified, the reality was there. But the free gift, verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Isn't that beautiful? That's why there's only one way of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Buddhism won't get you there. Mormonism won't get you there. Islam won't get you there. Hinduism won't get you there. Sikhism won't get you there. What other prayers were offered at the political convention last week? 
All right? Only Jesus Christ provides eternal life because only Adam provides eternal death. That lost estate in Adam, the new estate in Christ. The sickened, disgusting heart in Adam, the new heart being renewed, that newness of life in Jesus Christ. So, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's, that's verses 12 through 21 there, Romans 5. It's a powerful chapter. And it's, a, it's, it's useful in our evangelism to, to explain to folks. I've, I've met folks that tell me they've done too much, they've done some terrible things, there's no way they could go to heaven. And I used to say, oh, well, you haven't killed anybody, have you? And then I, I encountered my first murderer, and so I stopped using that. But it, it doesn't matter even if they have killed somebody. All right? It matters not. Okay? I was working in the jail when the yogurt shop murderers were down in there and, and got to know those guys. So, I mean, I've met murderers. I've met rapists. I've met all kinds of people. None of that matters. They're in Adam. They need Christ. They're in Christ. They have eternal life. And that's the issue. If your name's in the book of life, you're going to heaven. If your name's not in the book of life, you're going to hell. It's as simple as that. He who has the Son has life. So, this is the blessing. This is why the heart is sick above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God can know it. God assigned that as the judgment, as the consequence to Adam's sin. So on the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. And God very graciously assigned the consequences of that action, not just to Adam personally, to Adam and his posterity. Leaving the heart totally depraved. Jesus spoke of this again in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. There's also a Matthew parallel and a Luke parallel, but I like the phrasing in Mark 7 the best. Mark 7, 21 through 23. Pharisees are all worked up about unwashed hands and eating food with unwashed hands. And Jesus says, you've got this backwards. You're concerned about physical defilements and let me tell you about spiritual defilements and it's not what's going in your mouth, it's what's coming out of the heart. Verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, here's cardia, of course, it's lave in, in Jeremiah, out of the heart of man produces the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. Before you ever commit a physical sin, you've already done it in your heart. It proceeds from the heart. That's the fallen heart of man. And so the fallen race is totally depraved. But thank God for it. But it goes on to say that Yahweh searches the hearts and the minds or the kidneys. He tests the heart, searches the heart and he tests the kidneys. He searches the heart and he tests the kidneys. And what's neat is that this is what God does. It's not up to us. God's the one doing this work. You think, wow, if the heart is what's being tested and my heart is wicked, I'm in trouble. Until God, of course, produces the new heart. Until God's the one that does the work to renew me. Until I receive that by grace. Here's the thing. If I try to do it through human effort, if I dedicate myself to turning over a new leaf or making myself a better person, what am I doing? I'm setting myself up for failure and and, and in a horrible train wreck. Talked to somebody last Monday night. They were saying, every day I I try to be a better person than I was yesterday. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's got to be exhausting. That's got to be absolutely exhausting. And that this person knows I'm a pastor, and they, they were kind of shocked I reacted that way. And I used the opportunity to say, you know what? Um, self-improvement or trying to make myself a better person? I know I'm not a better person. I'm a sinner. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And he gives me his righteousness. And he works in my heart. I receive the word of God implanted that's able to save my soul. And it's the working of God in me. And he can critique that all he wants because he's the one doing that work. I trust he's going to be well pleased with his work. Yahweh searches the heart and tests the kidneys. This is the second time we've had this concept, by the way. 
We, we already had it in, in chapter 11. I don't think I stressed it very much. It's going to come back again in chapter 20. Jeremiah 11. And, and this shouldn't shock us that he's the one that sees the invisible. He searches the heart. He's not evaluating us the way our fellow man evaluates us for success or failure in life. Jeremiah eleven twenty, O Lord God of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. See, not every verse in the Bible about feelings is bad, but we want to be biblically adjusted to the kidneys, the Hebrew, the kilia, and then of course the lave, the heart. And uh, it should be the word of God in the heart that drives the feelings, not vice versa. Chapter 17, 10 is our passage today. Chapter 20 and verse 12 will be in in three weeks. Chapter 20 and verse 12. Verse, uh, this is great. Chapter 20. If you have any fears, if you have any enemies, if you're worried about things going on, chapter 20 is for you. Um, Verse 10 says, I've heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. They were just waiting to tear him down. That's why Jeremiah was such a type of Christ. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Say, I'm with him. (laughs) Yahweh Elohim, he's my champion. You want to tear me down, then I'm calling him to fight on my side. And you guys are doomed. The Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, the kidneys and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have set forth my cause. Anyway, we'll deal with that in three weeks. Thankfully, truth in the innermost being is God's work, not ours. He desires truth in the innermost being. So long as we are saved and coming to a knowledge of the truth, that's his plan. He desires for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not here to populate heaven with a bunch of babies. He wants us to receive eternal life and then start to treasure that that word in our heart, start to lay up our treasure in heaven, start to be transformed by truth in the innermost being. And God's the one that does that work. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Samuel was all impressed with David's big brother. and Nope, it was a little brother that God had in mind. It was the, the runt of the letter. So don't look at the, the guy that's all tall, dark, and handsome and the, the, the earthly looks and all of that. God looks at the heart. Psalm 51, 6. Here's another Davidic psalm. See, how many of these Davidic psalms shaped Jeremiah? I think it's amazing. Psalm 51, 6. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. It's a good verse for total depravity of fallen man in Adam. Then he said, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Isn't that amazing? David, the psalmist that speaks about forming the inward parts in the womb, about forming my inward substance, about knowing me in my mother's womb, and and all the blessings of of pregnancy and childbirth in in the physical realm. And then he says, this is what God's doing in his soul as the word of God is ministered. You desire truth in the innermost being. Placing truth in those kidneys, okay? In the kilia, in the... uh, Lave in the heart. And that's why if you want stability over emotions, stability over um, the kidneys, the, the passions, and, so, and, and you know, not everybody's as passionate as other people, but we all have some kind of passions for something. Well, we want our passions shaped by the Word of God. We want our kidneys, that's the Hebrew expression, uh, saturated in truth. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, a New Testament version of this. And then Hebrews 4.12. It's the word of God that's the critical judge of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 1 Corinthians 4.5, God brings to light those things that are hidden at the judgment seat of Christ. The things hidden will be exposed. 
we had more time. Ooh, that's not good. Wow. <laughs> that's a brilliant point. Look at that. There it is. All right. Isn't that goofy? I thought I could fit it on one slide, and then I changed my mind and said, no, let's put it over there. All right. Satan may have engineered Adam's fall, but Satan cannot handle the resultant consequences. When you read verse 11, read it in angelic terms. Read it in the the context of the fall of man, in the context of the angelic conflict. Read um, and understand and appreciate the liar who said, I will be like the Most High God, and yet he's nothing like the Most High God, and he's utterly frustrated by the volitional uh, rebellions of these pesky cockroaches that he's trying to herd and trying to, you know, it's like herding cats or something, and you're trying to trying to keep these people all on, on target, and these pesky volitional humans are not cooperating with Satan's grand plan. And it's interesting, as, as you read through, as a partridge that hatches eggs which it had not laid, um, Satan didn't create this world. These aren't his eggs, but he thinks he can run the place since he's now seduced Adam and Eve and he's, he's got dominion over the fallen realm of man. He who makes a fortune but unjustly. You know, and he thinks he's the richest being on the planet. He even offers the treasures to Jesus. He says, bow down and worship me and I will give you all the wealth of the entire cosmos. He who makes a fortune but unjustly. And in the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end, he will be a fool. And it's interesting to see the end of Satan. And when you do your advanced Satanology studies from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, I think you need, and I regret that I didn't include this in, uh, in our uh, angelology that we did back in the day. I think it's a marvelous passage that ad- addresses Satan who cannot handle the consequences. Study the tribulation sometime. Study the role of Antichrist sometime. And observe how he ha- he's forced to invade the promised land. He's forced to intervene when he doesn't want to. And then rumors from the north and the east will disturb him. And he goes forth with great wrath. And it's, it's like this hero, this white horse rider, this man of peace, Antichrist, who is supposed to be this great you know, savior hero, and it all falls apart. And he's furious. He's absolutely livid. I think he's livid against Satan for, for not planning for these things. Okay? Particularly since God wrote about them so long ago. Verses 12 through 18. I am convinced this is one of the deepest passages anywhere in the scriptures. Is verses 12 through 18. Jeremiah sees and speaks. Let me blank that out. Let's read the verses and let me ask you some questions. Jeremiah 17, verses 12 through 18. Who's speaking here? A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Wow. It's a message that goes back to the beginning and from the beginning. If you're thinking with me on this. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Well, what's our sanctuary? Who's us? If we have a sanctuary, who's our? Who's speaking here? O Lord, the hope of all Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Look, they keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. But as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you, nor have I longed for the woeful day. You yourself know that the utterance of my lips was in your presence. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those who persecute me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of disaster. And crush them with twofold destruction. All right, here is perhaps one of the deepest passages in all of Scripture. Jeremiah 
Is he speaking for himself? I believe he's speaking for Jesus Christ. Jeremiah sees and speaks in the first person through the eyes and mouth of Jesus Christ in reminiscing with God the Father over the place of our sanctuary. Over the place of our sanctuary. All right? This is not Jeremiah reminiscing over the Temple of Solomon. This is not Jeremiah reminiscing over the earthly sanctuary or thinking back with a fragrance of memories over days gone by, which for the young man Jeremiah cannot possibly be from the beginning. All right? From what we would call eternity past, from the ages of old. This is someone that has the capacity to remember back. This is like Jesus Christ who says, before Abraham was born, I am. This is such a broader passage than is usually considered. All right, This, this passage is a, is a Bible conference all by itself in a glorious way. Because there's two times that this happens in the Old Testament. And up until recently, I was only aware of one. I was only aware of of Psalm 22 and David speaking on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Two times when a prophet is placed in the eyes and mouth of Jesus Christ and utters the very words of Jesus himself. David on the cross and Jeremiah here, all right? Also on the cross, but thinking back to the temple and looking forward to the future temple. There's so much here. This is an amazing thing. So, a, uh, again, the clues in this text. A glorious throne on high from the beginning. And we are spanning, we are even preceding time in, this, in the scope of this. Is the place of our sanctuary. Remember, Jeremiah was of a priestly family, but he was of a line that was expelled and not allowed priestly service. He never had a day that he served in the, in the temple of Solomon. Not once. But here, the place of our sanctuary and uh, the trust that he has and the reliance that the son has on God the Father during the crucifixion is all spoken here, very similar to David in Psalm 22. In fact, this whole passage is a similar counterpart to David's first person account of the cross in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David uttered that expression. David saw the cross a thousand years before it happened. And he saw the cross from the first person's perspective of hanging on the cross and looking out and watching all the, the, the evildoers that surrounded him, that divided his garments, that cast lots, that wagged the tongue, that hurled abuse. David saw uh, Calvary a thousand years before it happened and he wrote it in Psalm 22. It's an amazing thing. Jeremiah is doing the same thing here. But he's reflecting upon the sanctuary of the Father from eternity past. It's interesting. Why did David and Asaph, they both, they saw glimpses of Yahweh's sanctuary from its former times. David wrote about that sanctuary in Psalm 68. Asaph wrote about it in Psalm 73, Psalm 74. I'm going to assign this as homework, which means nobody's going to do it, but I'm going to assign it anyway. Read these Psalms. Read Psalm 68, 35. David loved the temple of God. And then you ask yourself, David, there was no temple. You weren't allowed to build the temple. Solomon, your son, built the temple after you died. What temple are you loving and and singing about here in Psalm 68? All right? David and Asaph and, and the sons of Korah and these psalmists were given glimpses back to the heavenly temple before humanity to see the very temple here. And this is what Jeremiah is worshiping. What Jeremiah wants to see restored. 6835, 7317, 7847, 7869, and 966. All right? Got some amazing psalms in there. The place of our sanctuary is a former and future glory for Jesus Christ and God the Father. In fact, I think this is what's in his heart when he's praying uh, about that glory. Father, John 17, Father. Restore to me this glory. John 17, 5. What does it say? I'm glad it's not a communion Sunday. John 17, 5. He says, now, He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the pre-temporal glory, the place of our sanctuary. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Why did Jesus ascend to the Father? Why did Jesus take blood, his own, to cleanse that heavenly temple? Because that's the sanctuary we enter into in the church age. We have a former and future glory for Jesus Christ and God the Father. And Jeremiah is speaking of this in the first person in Jeremiah 17, verses 12 through 18. This is Jeremiah's Psalm 22 experience where with the eyes and mouth of Jesus Christ, he's able to utter this prayer. This prayer that Jesus himself will utter on the cross. Looking forward to those coming days. Revelation 20, you can read about that. Revelation 21, Revelation 22, the new earth, the restored glory, the throne in the sanctuary. All right, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son. In Revelation 20, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, and that's what we're looking for. The new heavens and the new earth. You and I are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not looking for November 8th and some political outcome. Okay? All right. The last part of the chapter, Jeremiah 19 verses, or 17 verses 19 through 27, dealing with the Sabbath. Go stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out. Say to them, listen to the words of the Lord, kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who come through these gates. Quit defiling the Sabbath. Sabbath observance. It's a very simple outward indicator for inward allegiance to the Lord. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen. Or incline their ears, but they stiffened their necks in order to not listen or take correction. So the point is, the flagrant Sabbath violation, it's a very simple outward indicator for inward allegiance to the Lord. And uh, this was a theme for Isaiah and Jeremiah. They both highlighted it. By the way, it's why the uh, captivity was necessary. The land itself needed its Sabbath rest. The land itself had to be provided its rest for the 70 years that God sent uh, the Jews over to Babylon. Nehemiah will highlight it again. In fact, in Nehemiah 13, it gets a little spectacular. He he blocks the gate. (laughs) He stops the caravans. He says, come back tomorrow. We're closed today. Jerusalem's closed. And all the Sabbath breakers are like, what are you talking about? What do you mean I can't? You know, people today can't figure out why they can't buy certain things on Sunday because of some tradition that they don't understand anymore that goes way back to an era they don't understand or relate to. Okay. Sadly, the Pharisees are going to weaponize the issue and they're going to use it as a control factor in their humanly devised system of relative righteousness. They made it they turned it around instead of using the outward Sabbath observance as an indicator of inward heart obedience. They weaponized it. They, forced, they made this the hallmark of their control over the people's lives. They get to control. See, oh, you can't pick up your pallet and go home. Never mind the fact that Jesus Christ told them to do it. Okay, John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man and says, now take your pallet and go home. And all the Pharisees jump on him and say, you're working on the Sabbath. John chapter 5, verses 10 through 18. All right, well, I'm out of time. You know, the Sabbath issues should be pretty simple, and Jesus was preaching on it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, after all. Sabbath, you know, was was God's grace provision in so many ways. Um, Anyway, again, John chapter 5, Life of Christ series, on the website, just sitting there, okay? If you want more on John chapter 5, just grab that Life of Christ series. In fact, I think 479 hours, something like that. It's one of the, it's, it's just, I, lo- I want to start all over again, teach it all over again, because it was such a favorite series, the whole life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And there it is. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this chapter. This chapter has everything in it, Father, from Satan to the fall of man to 
uh, an Old Testament soteriology to some deep expressions of of uh, the pre-incarnate glory of your son and the temple so many things father i pray that that uh, well a day may come father that we can reteach jeremiah maybe verse by verse instead of chapter by chapter but nevertheless father i ask that this day and, and this series would continue to be a blessing father uh, i believe that our congregation needs the the impact of isaiah and the impact of jeremiah because either an Isaiah consequence or a Jeremiah consequence is coming to our nation. And Father, we've got days in front of us whereby believers are either going to get serious about your truth and uh, have salt and light preservative benefit to our nation or our nation is headed for destruction. I believe that, Father. And I I just pray that this book study will be an effective uh, blessing to the brothers and sisters of not just this congregation, but who knows, Father, folks are listening around the world on the website, and this doctrine, Father, is vital, and we need it. We need it now, and I thank you that you're feeding us with it, and uh, I ask that you continue to open our eyes, lead us in, in these things. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.